You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. We're going to transition now into uh, the message, Colossians chapter 3. And um, if you have been with us for some time in Colossians chapter 3, uh, you know that our series entitled Embracing the Supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now up to this point, we have defined supremacy as that person or thing in your life who in your heart or mind surpasses everything else in status, power, and authority. In other words, it's that person or thing in your life that has authority or you give permission to have authority over you. Chapter one, Paul is arguing that the only person that should ever have that kind of permission is Jesus Christ, amen? In chapter two, Paul is saying that there are rip currents of false teaching in our culture that would rob our uh, confidence in the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Now in chapter three, which is where we find ourselves, Paul is saying this is what life looks like under the supremacy of Jesus. When you surrender to the lordship of Jesus and you give your life to him, this is what your life looks like. But before we dive into Colossians chapter 3, actually, you know what, let's go ahead and read these verses um, before we watch this really cool video. You want to stand with me as I read aloud the scriptures? We haven't done that in a while. Everything feels a little different today. It's a good different. Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 through 17 says this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another and if, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called to one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we bow our hearts, we bow our knees, God, in your presence, and we thank you for Jesus. We are here because of Jesus. We have hope because of Jesus. We can experience joy and peace and flourishing in this life because of Jesus Christ and what he has done. So Father, now as we think about what life under his reign looks like, God, would you give us a great picture of the joy that can be ours when we surrender to him fully? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, if you're a 90s kid like I was, you may remember this commercial right here. Be like Mike. 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 Be
Oh man, that brings back amazing memories from the 90s. I've dated myself. Man, when I was growing up and I was a kid, I wanted to be like Mike. I would go down to the local school at Crest Haven Elementary and I would play basketball with all of my friends. And of course, as we would start playing hoops, we would all put on the identities of one of our favorite players. So uh, one person would be Larry Bird. Another guy would be Isaiah Thomas. Someone would be Magic Johnson. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You remember the guy that could do the hook shot. But who was the guy that everybody wanted to be? Everybody wanted to be Jordan. We would fight over being Jordan because everybody wanted to be like Mike. He's the GOAT. He's the greatest of all time. End of conversation. There is no debate. And all God's people said, what? What? <laughs> I wanted to be like Mike so bad. And so I remember hours, countless hours I would spend in my driveway uh, practicing because I wanted to be like him. Practicing three-point shots and hook shots and um, layups and free throws. And I would even, every once in a while, try to, I would lower the basketball hoop. And when I would try to dunk, I'd put my tongue out. You remember that? I had, I had the shorts, I had the Jordan shirt, I had the Jordan hat. The only thing I didn't have was the Jordan shoes because my mom's like, I'm not spending $150 on shoes. But I wanted to be like Mike. So did half the kids in America. And what Paul is telling us here in this text is Paul is arguing that if Christ is truly supreme in your heart and mind, if Christ is truly Lord, if he reigns over everything else in your life, as God, then it's natural for you and I to want to be like Jesus. And if we're going to be like Jesus, as we saw last week, there are virtues or vices that we have to put off, sexual vices, relational vices that we have to put off if we're going to be like Jesus. But then we're also going to see this week that there are virtues that we have to put on. It's not just that there are things we stop doing, but there are things now that we must start doing. And the reason why that this is crucial is because all of this that Paul is going to talk about in verses 12 through 17 relates back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 where he says this, if you have been raised with Christ, then seek those things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. What Paul is saying is there's coming a day. There is coming a day when your faith will become sight. There is coming a day where everything that you have believed in this life about this book is going to be fully realized. There's coming a day, church, there's coming a day when you're going to see Jesus face to face and everything that you ever doubted, everything that you ever struggled with, everything that you ever hoped and dreamed is going to be fully realized when you see him face to face. So live for that moment. Your view of eternity right now should be transforming your moral trajectory. Your view of eternity should be transforming your moral trajectory in this life. That is what Paul is arguing for in this text. And so what we're going to do is here's the roadmap. We're just going to talk about what it looks like to put on Christ's character what Christ's character brings for us, and how it helps us to accomplish our ultimate goal in life. That's what we're going to talk about for the next 30 minutes. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, we come to you and we ask that Jesus would guide us during this time, 
that he would exalt himself and magnify himself during this moment. Father, that you would craft in us a passion and desire to be like Christ, to put off the old self and to put on the new. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, point number one is this, put on Christ's character. And I find that in verse 12, it says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on Christ. And what Paul is doing is picking up a motif that he began in verses 9 and 10. If you back up into chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, it also says there, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self of his practices and have put on the new self. So he's using this, this picture of clothing, of taking of putting off clothing, putting on clothing. And this is a motif that he uses throughout the entire New Testament. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, he says, For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. He says in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Now, clothing doesn't say everything about the person. But it does say a lot because it's the first thing you see. It's the first impression that you make on people is your clothing. It can communicate what tribe you're a part of, what team you root for. It can communicate your values and your sense of identity. It can communicate your socioeconomic status. It can communicate your attitude toward life and toward other people. It doesn't communicate everything, but it does communicate a lot. Now watch this. If we are to show a watching world that Christ is supreme in us, where is the first place they will see it? In our clothing. No, not our cotton weave, but in the clothing of our attitudes and our behaviors. That is where a watching world will first see if Christ is supreme in us. Paul is addressing this idea that our behavior as Christians becomes a sort of advertisement for what life in Christ really looks like. It is precisely in the everyday life that we live, where we toil, where we, sl- where we sweat, that we show the world who or what is truly supreme in our lives. We will wear the proof of what really reigns over us on our sleeve, amen? In our clothing, in our attitudes, and our behaviors. Now, here's the good news. You might be thinking to yourself, well, Pastor Matt, I'm not really sure people can actually change. Let me prove to you that you can. Look at what it says in verse 12. Put on, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, You have been chosen by God to be holy. That's not sinking in, is it? You have been chosen by God to be holy. Set apart from sin unto righteousness. Which means your whole life, your old life before you met Christ, 
God is telling you he picked you and he chose you to separate yourself from that and to become something totally and utterly brand new. And here's the beauty of this verse. If God chose you to be holy, then you can choose daily to be holy. So how do we do that? Well, if Christ really reigns supreme in you, these characteristics, these seven characteristics that we're going to walk through now are going to show up in your life. And it's going to be equal parts fruit that will just naturally develop out of you, but it's also going to be fruit that you have to tend, that you have to put effort into applying to your life. Because Paul is actually telling us here, put these things on, give them effort, try to apply these things in your life. And there are seven qualities that were true of Jesus in his life that Paul wants to be true of us in our lives as Christ lives through us. The first we see here in the text, he says, chapter 3, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. If you're taking notes, write this down. A willingness to step into somebody else's shoes. It's a willingness, that's compassion, a willingness to step into somebody else's shoes, to walk their path and their road for a while, or at least seek to understand it. When we think about Jesus, and this is who he was, that he stepped out of heaven where he had perfect fellowship with his father and was willing to humble himself, to divest himself of his rights and his privileges, to put literally not just our shoes, but our flesh and wrap himself in it. That is, he was compassionate. He came to us as, and saw us as sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion. He wept over us because of our sinful state. And that means if we're going to be like Jesus, we have to be willing at times to step into the shoes of other people that we don't understand and we don't get. I remember when um, I was in high school, I worked at Target. And um, I was a cashier at the front lanes. And I don't know if you've ever noticed that Target, uh, the front lanes at Target is, is like, it's a minefield for moms with little kids. Because you got toys, shiny objects, and lots of sugar. Everything that a kid could ever want. And so a mom will bring, that, I remember this would happen all the time, a mom would bring a little two-year-old through in, in the shopping cart and that two-year-old would look like he had a halo on his head in his right mind, nothing wrong in the world. She would bring him into that final stretch, almost ready to go home through the checkout line and all of a sudden that two-year-old, a screw would come loose and he would just lose his mind. Mommy, I want Coke, I want this, I want that, I want the toy, I want that. And of course, mom would say no, and just what would happen? And I always remember when I was in high school thinking to myself, because it didn't happen with every mom, didn't happen with every kid, but here's what, what often can, can I illustrate from my failure. I would think to myself, if, if you would give your kid more attention or you were a better parent, your kid wouldn't act like that. (laughs) To which the Lord said, just you wait. (laughs) Because now as I have one, maybe four high maintenance kids, now, 
I now live in those shoes. And one of the things I didn't understand for a lot of those moms is a lot of those were moms, were single moms working two, three jobs at a time, just trying to make it. And here I am in my self-righteousness, in my ignorance, looking at them, unwilling to step into their shoes and understand what they're going through. But that's what Jesus did, and that's what he calls us to do. Second of all, in the text, he not only asks us to be compassionate, but to apply kindness. Kindness is a, a generosity of spirit that says this, I'm for you. It's a generosity of spirit that says, I'm for you. There's something about a person when they look at you and, and you can just tell they're for you, you will do anything for them, won't you? Now, that doesn't always mean that they're for your thing. They're for your decisions. That doesn't necessarily mean they're even for your lifestyle. But when you know that a person is for you, that can change your life. That's exactly what happened for Rosario Butterfield. If you've never read her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, you should pick it up. Rosario wrote this in her memoir about the journey from becoming a committed lesbian to a committed Christian. Rosario Butterfield said that, As a non-Christian, her impression of evangelical Christians was that they were poor thinkers, judgmental, scornful, and afraid of diversity. So after publishing a critique of an evangelical Christian group in her local newspaper, Rosario received an enormous volume of polarized responses. Placing an empty empty box in each corner of her desk, she she sorted hate mail into one and fan mail into the other. And then she received a two-page response from a local pastor. And she said this, it was kind. It was a kind and inquiring letter, she said. It had warmth and civility to it, in addition to its probing questions. She couldn't figure out which box to put the letter in, so it sat on her desk for seven days. It was the kindest letter of opposition I had ever received in my life. Its tone demonstrated that the writer wasn't actually against me. And eventually she contacted the pastor, became friends with him and his wife, and they talked, and this is what she said, they talked with me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. Their friendship was so important that it was a major part of my coming to faith in Christ. That's what kindness can do. And yet kindness is so underrated in our culture, isn't it? But we are to put on kindness. Look at what it says here in the text. Humility. Humility. That is in Philippians chapter 2 where Jesus says, where Paul said about Jesus that um, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That always threw me for a loop, Jason, when I thought, like, did Jesus not understand? He couldn't grasp the concept of equality with God. Like, he's the second member of the Trinity. He ought to be able to figure it out, right? That's not what it means. It means he didn't grab for it. He wasn't reaching for it. That Jesus in his humility was willing to humble himself as if he was lower than God, to divest himself of his rights and his privileges so that he could really be like one of us. And so that in Jesus' ministry, there wasn't this incessant need in Jesus for honor. There wasn't this incessant need to rise in the pecking order. There wasn't this incessant demand for people to worship him. He just humbled himself. 
And that is very instructive for us, especially in a culture where uh, honor, man, we love honor. Amen? And we love rising in the social pecking order and the political pecking order and in, and in the friendship pecking order. And yet Jesus, or Paul tells us here in the text, if we're going to be like Jesus, we've got to be willing to set that aside and just serve. That's humility. Number four, and very similar, he says here in the text, humility, meekness. By the way, is it warm to anybody else? I am dying. That's why I shed the coat already. I'm dying up here. I don't know if it's just me. Anyway, now you're going to be thinking about it, right? Don't fall asleep on me. Meekness, power under control. If we're going to be like Jesus, meekness is power under control. It's a willingness to operate out of our weakness rather than our strength. Now, that goes totally countercultural to everything that we have been taught about leadership. Leadership is all about leading from your strengths. Always have your game face on. Never let them see you bleed. And all God's people said, amen. But I remember when that started to seep into my parenting. And I would lay down the law with my kids. Never lose an argument, I was told. Remind them always who's in charge. And I could get my kids to obey, but I'd lose their hearts in the process. And somewhere along the line, I think I was reading probably a Paul Tripp book on parenting. And he said, lead from your weakness as a parent. And I started, there's times where you have to lay down the law with your kids. I'm not saying that you can't do that. But there are moments where I just get down with my daughter and I say, honey, you know what? Daddy struggles with his emotions too. Sometimes daddy gets angry and he responds in ways that he shouldn't. And you know what? When, when daddy does that, it makes God really sad. But you know what? God still loves daddy even when he fails. And you know what, honey? Even when you struggle with your anger and it goes a place that it shouldn't, I'm sad, but I'll never stop loving you, honey. And neither will God. Let's go to him right now and say, we're sorry, what do you say? I gain their obedience and I win their heart when I lead from my weakness rather than my strength. I think that's why in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus said, the meek are the ones that inherit the earth, not the strong. Lead from your weakness. Number five, patience. If we're going to be like Jesus, we have to be patient. Oh, man. Patient. It says in verse 13, bearing with one another. Oh, man. This means to be long-fused. <laughs> this is my weakest spot. This is my weakest spot. I am not a patient person. I like things to happen fast. Can I get an amen? I remember I was reading a great story um, about a man who was out shopping with his son, and uh, he'd been given the responsibilities of taking his son out to do uh, the, the grocery shopping. So he took his son out to the grocery store and um, his son just, screw comes loose. He starts screaming and yelling and kicking and grabbing things off the shelves. And, and uh, dad is becoming ever frustrated, doesn't know what to do. And um, heads are starting to turn at the store and look at what's going on with this kid who's just making a commotion. And so as he's walking down the aisles and this kid is literally like grabbing stuff off of the shelves and just throwing it down to the floor. 
this mom is standing in the aisle and she overhears the dad walking by and she goes, hold on, Donald. It's going to be okay, Donald. Hold on, boy. You're going to be all right. Just calm down. The mom was so impressed by what he was doing that she walked up to him and she said, hey, I just want to tell you, I'm blown away at your ability to handle this two-year-old. I'm so impressed. She looks down, she goes, Donald, what's wrong? What's the matter? He goes, oh, hold on, that's Henry. I'm Donald. (laughs) But that's, that's putting on patience, isn't it? is you're preaching to yourself. Jesus is patient with me. I'm going to be patient with you. Jesus is patient with me. I'm going to be patient with my children. Jesus is patient with me. I'm going to be patient with my career. Jesus is patient with me. I'm going to trust him and be patient with you. That's putting on Christ. We also see here in the text, as the Lord Verse 13, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's a readiness to forgive. It's a spirit of forgiveness. I've heard a lot of teaching in the church that says, well, I can't forgive until they repent. To which I would say, no, you can't restore the relationship until they repent but you can be ready to forgive and you can forgive in your heart because the reality is there are going to be times in your life where people are going to take something from you that you won't ever be able to get back. And I think those are the moments where forgiveness is hardest when I am asked to forgive somebody that can't give me what I lost back. I was reminded of the story of Amber Geiger this last week, um, female police officer who walked into the room of Botham Jean. And as Botham stood up eating a bowl of Cheerios, the police officer pulled out her gun and shot him, killed him on the spot. She had walked into the wrong room, the wrong apartment. It was a total accident. Well, we believe. And at the hearing, Botham's younger brother, Brant, only 18 years old, takes the stand. And he gets up and he says to Amber, I don't hate you. I don't wish you dead, even though my brother is. If I could wish anything for your life, it would be this. I think it's what both of them would wish for you is that you would give your life to Jesus Christ because he died for both of them. He died for you. And because of him, I forgive you. And then he said, can I get up and give Amber a hug? He kite up around the stand, walks up to Amber and gives the woman who killed his brother a full body hug, not just a full embrace. That's forgiveness. We forgive because Christ forgave us, amen? And when I think about 
the ways that I've been slighted in my life and the, way that I, the ways that I've been hurt in my life, there are some things that, frankly, I just, there are people in my life I hope I don't see at the mall when I'm walking around. You got anybody like that in your life? You just hope you don't bump into? I do. And I'm still working on forgiveness in my heart. Finally, it says here in the text, in verse 13, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. In verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That love that is the sacrifice of self that is for the benefit of others is the thing that binds all of this together. Look, at the end of the day, we can be kind, compassionate, humble, all of these traits, but if we don't have love in our hearts for one another, ultimately, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that all of these things are just a clanging symbol. They're empty, hollow, they mean nothing. We must love each other with a sincere love that comes from God. And Paul says here in the text, we must never confuse, watch this, this is crucial. We must never confuse morality with Christianity. Let me say that again. We must never confuse morality with Christianity. You can be a very moral, upright person and not be a Christian. I have met with many atheists, have some in my family who are very moral, upright people, but they are not Christian. But here's the catch. We cannot claim to be Christians if we are going to intentionally ignore morality. Our attitudes, our behaviors, Paul says, are the advertisement to a watching world of what being in Christ really does to a person's life. So let me ask you, what kind of advertisement does your life project? Put on Christ's character. Now, the rest of the text, verses 15 through 17, I'm going to plow through fairly quickly because I want us to just focus some... I want to take some time at the end of our service to pray. This is kind of off the cuff, but are you guys okay with that? We're just going to take some extra time to pray as a church. We don't usually do that here, but I think especially as we walk into our future, we want to walk by faith and not by sight, okay? So the second thing that I want to talk about, I'm going to talk about this briefly, is putting on Christ's character produces unity and mutual ministry. I see this in verses 15 and 16. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into, watch this, one body and be thankful. You see, in the Colossian church, just like our church, there was a lot of diversity. There was a lot of distinctions. And in fact, we see that in verse 11. Look at what this church was made up of. There is, uh, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all in in all. This was a scattered group of people, diverse and distinct in so many ways. And there's something about when we are all different and we are distinct that those distinctions can make us at times suspicious. They can make us distrustful, jealous, or even proud because of the distinctions, the things that make us different. Look, the Greeks were the hoity-toity crowd. 
They were the guys right off the main line. The Greeks were the people who were like all about culture and all about their intelligence. The Jews, on the other hand, they were the stiff ones. They were like, they walk around in all their traditions and all the stuff that they did and all their rituals, and they were stiff in the collar. But then you got the barbarians. They're the guys that love to party. They go out and they conquer a group of people. They come back and they just want to have a good time, get drunk, and who knows what else. Those were the barbarians and the Scythians, the slaves and the free. They were different because of their societal status. But here's what the gospel does. The gospel takes different groups of nationalities and races and classes and takes all of these people from all these socio, uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds and puts them through the washer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when it does, brings them out, not a washed out version of a nationality, race or class or gender, but a brand new creation. That's what the gospel does, is you go in as one thing, you come out as something completely different. It's just like the way a butterfly works. When a a caterpillar, who's not a relatively good-looking thing to begin with, goes in and creates the chrysalis, you know what I'm talking about, the cocoon, right? You know what it does? It literally liquefies. Like the whole thing literally just liquefies and comes apart and then reforms into something completely and utterly brand new and beautiful. And what Jesus is saying is, look, when the gospel washes over something and puts them into the chrysalis of the gospel, everybody comes out something new and something unique and something beautiful, and we are all one in Christ. So it takes all these different nationalities, races, classes, puts them in the chrysalis, makes them a new creation, clothes them in the beautiful character of Jesus Christ, and here's what it produces. Number one, it produces unity. It produces unity. What, what, what is the one thing that destroys unity in a church? It's not a trick question. You can say it if you know it. It starts with an S. Sin. But we put on the character of Christ, and the character of Christ creates unity and peace. Look at what it says in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule umpire in your hearts to which you were called into one body. He's using this illustration of an umpire to call the outs, to call the balls, to call the strikes, to call everything in the body of Christ. Because here's the thing. All those things that would seek to divide us, our our backgrounds and our differences and our prejudices and our preferences and parties and peculiarities and cultural backgrounds, experiences, ambitions, expectations. Look, we're different and we should be thankful for that. Amen? But those things would seek to divide. And what the gospel does is like an umpire, it stands over all of those things. And when those things come into our relationships and seek to divide us, the gospel says, out, no. Here's what you're going to put off. You're going to put off the peculiarities and distinctions and the preferences and the expectations. Put all of those things off and put on compassion and kindness and humility and patience and forgiveness and love. And when you do that, the church isn't looking for uniformity, but it can experience unity in diversity. That's what we're looking for. We don't want everybody to look the same. We don't want everybody to sound the same. We don't want everything to care about the same stuff. We don't want uniformity, but because of the gospel, we want unity. And that only comes through peace, when the peace of Christ reigns over our hearts. When the peace of Christ reigns over our hearts, that's where you know the word of Christ dwells. 
The peace of Christ reigns where the word of Christ dwells. Look at what it says in verse 16. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, live in you, take home and residence in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What Paul is saying here is this. The peace of Christ reigns where the word of Christ dwells. How can that be true of us? Well, what Paul is making very clear here in the text is that the church or the teachers in the church are not just Paul and Epaphras, and they're not just Pastor Matt and the elders. It's you too. Did you hear that? I'm not the only teacher in this church. I'm not the only preacher in this church. You are as well. Teaching and admonishing what? One another. You see, the reality is that each of us with our distinct differences, when they are surrendered to Christ, those differences, watch this, this is crucial, brings a breadth of teaching and admonition into the church that one pastor could never offer. There are some of you who are going through things that I will never experience in my life that you are able to teach and preach into the hearts and lives of other people that I could never touch. There are some of you who have tasted the bitterness of a broken marriage. I can't speak from a place of experience, but you can. For people that have experienced miscarriages or you have gone through a suicide attempt in your family, I can speak to that because when I was 14, my heart stopped beating in my chest. I was unconscious for three days. I can speak to that in a way that some of you can't. Some of you who struggle with same-sex attraction, you can speak into another person's life in a way that I never can. Those of us who struggle with a deep sense of loneliness or depression, who are going through financial chaos, or you're a young parent and you're not getting more than two hours sleep at night, you're ready to pull your hair out, you're going crazy. There are other young parents that can preach to you and speak into your life until you don't quit. For those parents who have experienced a prodigal, who is a child who has wandered from the faith, you can speak into people's lives in a way the church, I never can. And this teaching, watch this, doesn't just come from sermons and preaching. It happens when we do life on life together. And it also happens when we sing. Did you know that? We teach and we admonish one another. And we testify to one another. When we sing our stinking hearts out for the glory of God. We are teaching each other and encouraging each other and admonishing each other. Don't quit. Don't give up. It's worth it. See everything that I'm going through. I've still got my hands in the air. Jesus is worthy. Don't stop. Years ago, I was, it was at a retreat uh, with Steve and Kim Diedrich, some friends of mine from uh, college and seminary. And Steve and Kim had four kids. And they had just found out uh, that they were pregnant with their fifth. But they had also just found out that their child would likely uh, be born with Down syndrome. And as they started to learn what that process would look like and 
um, how that would affect family, it was a very hard reality to adjust to. And let's be honest, they were, they were devastated. But right after I heard that news, it was right before the worship, and you and I were there at that retreat down in Florida, I watched how they worshiped. I just kept peeking over at Steve and Kim. And you know what they were doing the whole time? They had their hands. I'm not going to do it because my shirt's too short, but you don't want to see my belly. I, I do one here. <laughs> Both hands in the air. They didn't care if their bellies were out. Eyes up to the sky, full voice, crying, praying, praising God, saying, God, we trust you. God, we believe in you. God, you are good. God, you are not out of control. You are sovereign. And to watch them worship that way had more of an impact on me than any sermon I heard at that retreat. Because when people know that you're struggling and you're suffering and you worship like that, that teaches. That preaches, amen? And let me say this real quick. Sorry, I'm going a little bit long today. And point number three, putting on Christ's character achieves our highest aim, verse 17. It says this, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here's the reality. This character of Christ thing that we're talking about, the character of a true believer is always going to be countercultural. It's always going to be countercultural. There's never going to be a cultural moment in which Christianity will perfectly fit. Sinful humanity will never cherish the characteristics of Christ. The characteristics of Christ will always be odd and out of place and off-putting in a sinful world. And so it's inevitable as you seek to put on the characteristics of Jesus, people are going to come to you with the inevitable questions. Why are you compassionate? Why do you empathize with people that have nothing in common with you? Why are you kind with people that would rob your rights and and, and trash your name? Why are you humble and meek? Why don't you stick up for yourself and advance yourself and, and, and tote your own name more? Why are you patient with people that seem like they're never gonna change? Why do you forgive when you know they're still gonna hurt you just again? Why do you love people who don't deserve it? Verse 17. So that whatever we do, whether in word or in deed, we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's all because of how Jesus sees and treats me that motivates how I see and I treat you. And when I see and I treat you the way Jesus in heaven sees and treats me, Jesus stands in heaven and says, yes, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus is glorified. We must never confuse morality with Christianity. You can be moral. You don't have to be Christian. However, We cannot claim to be Christians if we are going to ignore morality. Our attitudes and our behaviors, Paul says, are the advertisement to a watching world of what being in Christ really does in a person's life. So I ask you, what kind of advertisement 
does your life project? Put on Christ's character. Father, we love you. We praise you. Give you thanks for Jesus who gave his life for us. Father, we can't do this apart from him, so God, we need his help to put on his character. Lord, thank you, God, that you have not asked us to do anything that you will not equip us to do as well. So Father, this week, help us to put on the character of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that a watching world might know the difference Jesus really makes. In his name we pray. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.